And now if you turn with me to the book of Revelation, we're going to be looking this evening at chapter 12. We're going to begin our reading just a little bit before that at Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. If you'd please give attention to the holy word of the holy God. This is the word of the Lord. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. And it is completely without error. Beginning at Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding Your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear Your name both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. (coughs) And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
Then when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask that You would open our ears, open our eyes, that we might see and hear the Lord Jesus Christ, even speaking through His Word. Help us, O Lord, to read, to understand, to know Your Word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we even had a question about that this evening. That is, the frustration that we feel as Christians as we wait for redemption to come. To wait to get a release from pain, a release from death, a release from error that is about us. And there is a tension because we see even here in God's Word a great celebration about the arrival of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful. But then we look around and we long for the full manifestation of that kingdom. But here in the book of Revelation, it is opened up to us to see the truth behind the material. You recall that the Apostle Paul writes that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And now here, at this point of the book of Revelation, we are moving into a new section. We are moving away from physical descriptions of plagues and of fire and of earthquakes, of churches, of people. And we are moving now to a description of the battle behind that battle, to see why it is that we have the difficulties that we do here on earth. Why heresy springs up in churches. Why fights and wars are before us. Even why the earth itself is subject to natural disasters. All of this is a result of the great battle going on behind the scenes. The great conflict between two seeds. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So we will look at that here this evening. We'll see three things. First, the conflict as it appears on earth. And then second, the conflict in heaven. And then third, we will see that we live in a time and a place of both danger and safety. So a conflict on earth, a conflict in heaven, and understanding that there is danger and safety before us. 
If we look beginning at Revelation 11 verse 15, we see this, this great celebration, this blowing of the trumpet, this end of all things as this cycle of seven. This is the third of seven cycles of seven. There are seven sevens in the book of Revelation describing the same conflict. And we see here the great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ described how He has begun to reign, how the nations that have raged against Him are put down, how His servants are being rewarded, and how victory is before the people of God. But then the scene shifts at the beginning of, of chapter 12, and we see this struggle again. It's as if once victory has been announced, and when we have gone into, in verse 19, the, the temple of God, as heaven is opened up, and we see the Ark of the Covenant, it is as if now the Lord says, now that victory is assured, let me show you what has previously been hidden. And so we see this again. This is yet another repetition. This is the fourth of seven. And this chapter, chapter 12, is not in the middle by accident. It is the key to the entire book of Revelation. Not the key in the sense that it is some kind of secret code by which we can interpret all of the figures, all of the signs. No, it is the key because it is the central theme of the book of Revelation that there is a great conflict that goes on between the great deceiver, the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, and the Lord God and His Christ. And here we see that conflict played out before us in vivid detail. The implicit has now been made explicit in this repetition of the struggle. Where before there were hints, you remember the destroyer who was described, Apollyon, in chapter 9. We just looked recently at the beast in chapter 11, verse 7, and we will see this again. We've seen heresy and destructive personalities in the churches, but now we see Satan himself named before us. The devil. Satan. John is really trying to get our attention to drawing us in here. You will see in verse 1 and verse 3, great signs appear in heaven. John only uses this word sign three times in this book. And it is twice here in one paragraph. He wants us to see that he is drawing before us a picture of the meaning of the universe in this great conflict. And what we have here, we will see, are two complementary visions. There is a battle on earth and there is a battle on he in heaven, but they are not they are not consecutive. There are descriptions of that same great battle that is before us. And so we'll look first here at this conflict on earth as it is described. And the first thing that we are struck by is this woman. It is, it is an odd description, isn't it? There is a woman. She has, she's clothed with the sun. I'm not really sure what that looks like. She has on her head a crown of 12 stars. She has the moon at her feet. And she is also with child. Now, who is this woman? Well, there are some, some false ideas, I think, about who this is. 
Some believe that this is Mary. Of course, the Queen of Heaven with the crown. Now, this causes a little bit of a difficulty because those who would have this be are also fond proponents of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that causes some difficulty at the end of this chapter when she has other descendants. So I don't think that is the case. I don't think this is describing a Queen of Heaven. There are some who fancifully, I am told, describe this as just an ordinary woman who gives birth to a hero in a story that will lead the Jews to a place called Petra because, of course, we must take all of this literally. There must be a literal birth. There must be a literal attack. But we've seen that this is not the case either. This is a sign and a symbol. What this is, is a picture of the Messiah's mother. Now, you may be struck, I just said, I don't think this is Mary. I'm talking about the Messiah's mother. I'm talking about the Messiah's mother in a greater sense. That is the church. Not the church, the building. Not the church, the organization. But the church, the divinely ordained line, the seed of the woman of Eve herself, that was promised the Messiah. As we see in the first chapter of Matthew, for example, the great giants of the faith and some other not so fond or so, some other not so holy men and women. A great line in which God has preserved the seed of the woman that He might bring about His Christ. And we see this because the woman gives birth to a son, a male child, who we see in verse 5, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, you've heard me say this before, but Revelation is very much key to the Old Testament. And that phrase is the Bible equivalent of a neon sign that says, Go look at Psalm 2. Who is the one who will reign with a rod of iron? It is the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. The King that God has set on His holy hill. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's actually very interesting here because this occurs right after that great... Uh, Homily, that great excited uh, re announcing of the kingdom of God in Revelation 11, which is a great contrast to those who announce opposition and hostility in Psalm 2. But this woman here is the church. We might think of the 12 stars as representing God's covenant people, the 12 children of Jacob. It's also interesting that John uses an Old Testament image. Do you know where else we see the sun, the moon, and the stars all brought together? The sun, the moon, and twelve stars? Do you remember the first dream that Joseph had? The dream that got his brothers so upset because he dreamt that the sun, the moon, his father and mother, and twelve stars had bowed down to him. You see, this is another way of John drawing on Old Testament imagery to describe for us that what is going on here is this is a picture of the church. The church has often been described as a woman. Isaiah describes the church as the daughter of Zion. 
in chapter 52. And of course, Paul himself in Galatians 4 writes about Jerusalem, the church who is our mother, who breaks forth in labor. This is who the woman is. Well, if that is the woman, then who is this dragon? Again, this is an odd image. If you picture a woman in labor and then a dragon standing before her, waiting, pacing, looking, getting ready as soon as the child is born to devour the child. How is this dragon described? Well, he is described as being red. Red like, I would say, blood. The blood of the martyrs. He is cunning, for he has seven heads. He has power. He has ten horns, which are a symbol of power. He has the authority to influence others. He has seven diadems or crowns on his heads. But you have to realize that all of these things are counterfeit and fake. The dragon wants you to believe that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-authoritative. But we know this is not the case. The dragon wants you to believe that he is as powerful as God, that he is God himself. And if we are honest, in the dark times of our soul, we could be tempted to believe that, can't we? We think we'll never get out of the financial difficulty that we are in. We think that there's nothing that can be done to save our marriage. There's no way that our children will ever come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. There's no way that God can use our church. But you see, that's what Satan wants us to believe. That is part of the battle. He wants us to think that he is all-powerful. And so he hatches this plot. It's a lethal plot to attack the son as he is born. But it's almost humorous how this is resolved. Do you see it? He is ready that he might devour the child in verse 4. And then in verse 5, she gives birth, but her child was caught up to God in his throne. What, whoa, what happened? How did the child escape the dragon? Where did he go? What was the flight? John, a little more detail, please. But you see, I think that's intentional. You see, in the twinkling of an eye, Satan thinks he has every angle covered. And before he can even think, our Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory. Because you see, the phrase here that says that the child was caught up to God and has his throne is used to encapsulate all of the birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ as He is caught up to God and placed on His throne. In a half of a sentence, the defeat of Satan is described. And you see, this battle here on earth between the woman, between Jesus Christ as the seed of the woman, and Satan is the sign of an older, larger battle. This battle goes beyond Revelation. It goes beyond the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the garden. Chapter 3, verse 15. It is a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan that we see in Cain and Abel, in Ishmael and Isaac, in Esau and Jacob, in false Israel of the Pharisees and the true Israel of the followers of Jesus Christ. 
You see, Satan has always been trying to destroy Jesus. And when he can't, he'll go for second best to destroy the followers of Jesus. This is a battle that has been going on since the beginning of time. And we need to understand some things that are true about this battle, that Satan is always hostile to the purposes of God. But Satan's doom is always sure. It is written in stone. Even Satan knows that he is defeated. Look here at verse 12. Satan knows that his time is short. And yet he still lashes out in hatred. And because of this, we know that we, the people of God, are caught up in the battle. Because you see, this is indeed the kingdom of our Christ. These are not two nations that war. But the territory that Satan has a foothold on is rebel territory. And we, as the church, have encamped on the gates of hell to knock them down. Jesus is attacking the gates of hell. And so we are in enemy territory. We must be careful. We must be ready like an army. We must be equipped with the sword of the Lord. We must put on the armor of faith because the battle is before us. We also need to remember that Satan is under the rule of God. He is hostile, but he is restrained. There is no victory possible for Satan because Jesus Christ has come and as John wrote in one of his letters, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is the conflict that we see on earth. And then in verse 7, we see that there arose a war in heaven. And this is a second conflict. It is a complementary vision. It is the same conflict, but instead of being viewed from earth, it is now being viewed from heaven. And we see now there is a turning point in the war of heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon. And the dragon is defeated and he is thrown down, that great deceiver of the world. And you notice then the cry that goes up after that happens in verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. You see, the turning point in the battle of heaven is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is assured by the work of Jesus And so, again, the struggle here is very brief. Just like we quickly passed by our Lord defeating Satan on earth, here we see it again in heaven. All of a sudden we hear that Satan is defeated. The Greek literally says he has no strength. And we see he's cast out of heaven. And he is brought low. Justice is done. The great accuser is silenced. No more will Job be accused. No more will Joshua the high priest be accused. No more will you, Christian, be accused. The deceiver is defeated. This is the final victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the establishment of His kingdom. It it awaits merely the consummation. This is, I think, what Jesus meant when He referred in Luke 10... 
to saying he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The establishment of the kingdom of God. Through his death, Jesus has conquered both death and bondage. Well, if this is the war on earth and the war in heaven, what then can we take from it? I think that we can take right now that we live as the church militant in a time and a place of danger and of safety. It seems odd, at odds, irreconcilable. But I think if we understand the nature of the conflict, we will see that this is so. We live in a place of danger because, quite frankly, Satan will not accept reality. Have you ever known anyone like that? Trying to put the veritable square peg in the round hole. And they're doing it, pushing, and pounding, and inspecting, and going. And you say, I don't think that's going to work. A little work. I'll make it work. Right? Maybe it's a task that you've had. That describes how, how Satan has his existence even though he himself knows that he is defeated and has no chance of victory. He will not accept reality. And so when victory in heaven is seen, he begins to then rage on earth. He can't destroy Christ, so he attacks the woman. He can't get after the woman, so he goes after her seed, her children. He has no place on which to vent his hatred and so this tells us that there is indeed for us as Christian a great danger from Satan because the closer that we are to Jesus Christ, the nearer that means we are to attack. The more we are like Jesus, the more we are the focus of the anger and hatred of Satan. If our church were not concerned with the Scriptures or evangelism or the work of the kingdom... Satan would leave us alone. The devil loves false churches. He loves churches that are not like Christ. But those who seek to be faithful to God's Word, to tell the good news, to be like Jesus, Satan cannot stand. And so what happens here then, and we see in verse 13 and following is, the dragon, that is Satan, pursues the woman and he pours out water like a river from his mouth. Now again, we, should, we ought not to take this literally. It's not like somehow Satan has a fire hose attached to his body. But if we think about how the mouth is used in the book of Revelation, how our Lord Jesus has a sword that comes out of his mouth, the Word of God, how we think about how the two witnesses testify to the truth of God and the judgment of God and fire comes out of their mouth. Out of the mouth come words and those words have effect. And here we see a flood and this flood is, I believe, a type of falsehood, false teaching that would seek to drown the church. But even at that, Satan is not successful. The ground opens up just as it did to consume the false priests, Korah and his followers, in the time of Moses. So it swallows up the false, deceptive teaching of the deceiver. 
And this brings us to our second and last point here that we are the objects of danger as we are like Christ, but that ironically puts us in the safest place we can be. Because to be near Christ is to know safety. That is the only place where we can be safe. Under the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. The more we follow Jesus, the more that we know the protection of our Lord. So you might be able to say that in the midst of this conflict, the more that you are under attack, the more encouraged you should be. Because Jesus is protecting you. Jesus has you in His arms. Jesus will keep you safe. He's fashioning you into His image. And this conflict will go on until it is resolved at the second coming of our Lord. It will take different shapes in the days, weeks, and months to come. But we need to be equipped and ready for the battle, trusting our Lord that He is victorious, that He will defend us, and that we will know His true safety. Let's pray.